you know, that's a mouthful, but when you realize that he has been responsible, he and his wife uh, together have been responsible for sending teams all over the world to touch, to release the supernatural. Uh, it is just mind-blowing what God has been able to do and continue to do through people who are hungry to give away uh, God's love. Uh, Chris is a senior associate leader at Bethel and has been uh, uh, teaming with uh, Bill Johnson and part of the apostolic team for over 26 years. Wow. And so uh, um, he is actually going to be here in two weeks uh, teaching at our Wagner Leadership Institute and uh, the, the foundational uh, picture of uh, the prophetic ministry. And so uh, maybe some of you would like to come back for that after you hear him today. But let's all stand and welcome Chris Valatin. doing it's been uh, just an amazing conference so far I missed uh, I think I missed a session yesterday but um, I caught uh, Chuck Pierce that guy's like is a little bit it's disheartening because some of you he'd make a point and you're like oh that's amazing and I'm in the, I didn't get that at all it's like I kept looking over at Stacy I'm like that guy lives in another realm and so do half of you I was really glad the whole room didn't shout. That was amazing because I, there were several points that he was up there in the heavenly places, and I was like, I'm just, uh, I need to learn this stuff, <laughs> prophetic stuff. <laughs> so uh, that was amazing. He's he's such an amazing guy. And then uh, last night I got to hear Mark Sharona for the first time, and oh my goodness. I was just incredible, fantastic, I don't know, and uh, he's smart too, <laughs> it's awesome, we've got so many smart people here, Graham's going to speak next, and I'm glad it's after me, <laughs> I went to What's the Matter You, <laughs> graduated with a degree in hammerology, so um, it's a uh, I'm not intimidated, though. I'm not, really. Honestly. I'm not. Really. <laughs> I am glad that certain people don't come to my sessions. I remember uh, a few years ago, I was doing a conference, and Jack Deere was there, and, and uh, I was preaching on identity, and I, I had all these... Uh, I had about four or five Greek words that I was going <laughs> to share the meaning of. <laughs> and then Jack Deere, who's, you know, a Greek scholar sitting in the front row, I'm like, nah, just scrap that. and <laughs> Just go with stories, you know. <laughs> and so, anyway, uh, that's awesome. But, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been awesome. How are you guys up there? I guess those used to be the cheap seats, but after Mark talked about the upper room, I guess. 
on a giveaway, something this is called From the Battlefield to the Bedroom. And um, actually, I just uh, re- rewrote my book. Uh, it used to be called Purity, the New Moral Revolution. Now it's called Moral Re- Revolution, the Naked Truth about Moral Purity. <laughs> we just keep mixing it up. Like when the sales start to go down, we change the title and put it out again. <laughs> actually, we wrote another chapter. My son was dating and uh, during, and he wrote, you know, he's part of our moral revolution movement, and and uh, he was dating, and he read through the purity book again. And he's like, Dad, this book, it's it's awesome, but it doesn't really have anything to do with dating. So I said to him one day, we were just clowning around. I said, Well, if you don't like it, write your own chapter. So he did, and we did redid the book and put his chapter in there. <laughs> so he's like, he's like, Dad, no one calls it courting anymore. Well, whatever. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. How many of you know when God said be fruitful and multiply, he gave you a sex drive? <laughs> where, where did the rest of you get yours? <laughs> I think actually the problem's really in the definition, right? What does it mean to have a sex drive? I mean, I've been doing this all over the world for several years. What does it mean to have a sex drive? I think it means you want to have sex with somebody. <laughs> Seriously. And young people, you know what happens is when a, when a young person hits puberty, you know? It's like they're worshiping God and they're like, I love you, Jesus. I want to have sex with somebody. <laughs> Seriously. And we teach them like that's not supposed to be happening. And instead of teaching them to manage their appetite, we teach them to to pretend like they don't have one. (laughs) And, yeah, it's the truth, you know. I'm right about this. I wrote a book, so I'm an expert. We did a moral revolution conference in La Paz, Mexico, last week, two weeks ago. And um, the archbishop of all of of Baja, California, got a hold of my moral revolution book, which is in Spanish. And he read the book. A Protestant pastor gave it to him. He read the book, and he called his Protestant friend six times during the reading of the book. And he said, this is amazing. He kept saying, this is amazing. He said, well, the pastor told him, well, we're doing a moral revolution conference and maybe you should come to it. He said, well, I need to meet the man who wrote this book. So he um, comes to this leadership thing I'm doing, uh, the archbishop, the Catholic archbishop of all of Baja, California, comes. He's about, he's about 70 years old. And he comes and he, s- he sits down at my table, and I'm doing this thing on the apostolic reformation. <laughs> which There's the archbishop right there in the front row. It's a little uncomfortable. And we're sitting at the table, and he's, he doesn't speak a word of English. I don't speak any, well, como estas. That's it. I don't even know what it means. <laughs> but people go, muy bien. I'm like, right. So we're, we're sitting at the table with the interpreter between us, and he's telling me, like, your book is so amazing. I really love your book. And he goes, the Catholic Church needs this book. 
and they need to hear this message he's telling me. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Thank you very much. Yeah, chapter one. Then he starts going through the chapters. Like he said, I read your book twice. He says, and chapter one, he's telling me about the ring story and all this stuff. And, and, and chapter two, I love what you said about that story you told. He's going on like, you know, you ever have someone compliment you so much? It's kind of like, okay, <laughs> it's enough. And so he's going on like that, and we're sitting at a round table with a whole bunch of other leaders, and I'm like, oh, I'm feeling like, you know, like you want to tell them something bad you did. <laughs> so I, I'm trying to, like, make small talk because it's getting really uncomfortable. It's, like, going on for, like, ten minutes. So he's got a, a really large cross around his neck. You know, the Catholics wear a large cross. And I go, just to kind of, for conversation's sake, I go, that's a beautiful cross you have around your neck. And he goes, yeah, he says, he looks, I, he looks at the cross and he said, this cross was given to me by the cardinal. Now, you know how uh, the authority in the Catholic Church goes, it goes pope, cardinals, archbishop, bishop, priests. So there's 200 cardinals in the world. He said, the most famous cardinal in all of Mexico gave me this when I became a priest many years ago. And he said, uh, and he died seven years ago, and it's my most prized possession. I said, well, it's really beautiful. About a minute later, he takes it off his neck and hands it to me. And he said, I want to give this to you. And I go, oh, no, I can't take your cross, dude. <laughs> so I go, I'm seriously, I can't take that. Now, the whole table, you know, they're, they're all the Mexican leaders, they are bawling. They're bawling their eyes out. And I, I, I know I'm crying too, but I'm a man, so I'm trying to. I said, I'm really sorry, I can't take this. And he goes, oh, I'm sorry, you're Protestant. He didn't mean it, he meant you don't, you don't do symbols. Like, I go, oh, no, give me that cross. <laughs> I meant to bring it, actually. I wore it on Sunday morning. I felt like Bishop Garlington, man. I can't wait. Bishop comes in two weeks. I'm wearing my cross. So that he said uh, to me, the, the uh, archbishop said to me, I have ordered all of my youth groups from Baja to come to the Moral Revolution Conference tonight. And he said, but I won't be there because I have, I have a mass I have to do. And I said, oh. That's a bummer. That would mean so much to me if you were there. He goes, you want me there? I said, oh, yes. He said, okay, well, I cancel mass. I'll be there. <laughs> so, so they expected about 300 youth. The place holds 1,000. The place was packed out. I mean, when the Catholics say, come, people come. <laughs> and the archbishop, he said, I'll have to be a few minutes later. So that's fine. So... There's the archbishop sitting right in the front row, right? And we're teaching on sex. He's 70, celibate his whole life. And so we're, and it's, it's not, uh, it's not, it's not, it's not really, it's not advertised as a Christian event. There's no worship. We just did a bunch of, they did a bunch of humorous stuff and then they have me, so, and my interpreter. So we're talking, it's edgy, you know? And we've got all these kids packed to the wall and so I'm doing all this really edgy stuff. And every time I make a point, the archbishop's on the front row, and he goes. He's, 
oh my God, I was rolling on the floor. And when we get done, he's like, that was so amazing. The whole Catholic church needs to hear this message. So, that's a moral revolution. <laughs> a good word right there. I told them the definition of sex, that it means you want to have sex with somebody, and the archbishop thought that was so funny. <laughs> Would someone like this? Uh, okay, somebody that's having a real problem with pornography and immorality. <laughs> you are not. Oh, you work with Pastor Che. Okay. No. By the way, those who are watching, I, that was a joke. That was a joke. <laughs> this is called Developing a Supernatural Lifestyle, and it's, it's about developing a supernatural lifestyle. That's why I called it Developing a Supernatural Lifestyle. And this stuff is, it's actually Graham's stuff wrote in a funny way. And that's a picture of me jumping. I was a little skinnier in those days. Actually, it isn't, uh, actually, at all. Would someone like this? Come on, honey. And this is my newest book called Heavy Rain. No, I have to give it to somebody up there, so somebody from up there, come down. Okay, Kathy's going to take it up there. Sorry, I'm so sorry. <laughs> you know, in um, Acts chapter 2, verse 17, it says, In the last days I'll pour out my spirit on some flesh. Oh, all flesh. Thus the word heavy rain. You know, I, I don't know if we really actually believe that. Like, it says that in the last days I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. And I, I actually believe that it means all. Like, Jack Deere's not here today, so like, that Greek word <laughs> means all flesh. Yeah, I just, I just really believe that. I'm right about that. I wrote a book about it. And uh, actually, that's one of the best books I've ever read, and I wrote it. So, no, it's a good book, and it's about cultural transformation. And how many understand this new apostolic age that the goal is not to put butts in seats, but to transform cultures? And uh, I, think it's, I think it's really ex exciting what God's doing. And, you know, he's taking us from coming to church to becoming the church. And I shared it last time, but, you know, Isaiah said, all of us like sheep have gone astray. You know how sheep go astray? They watch each other's butts and hope there's a shepherd up front. Well, Mildred, 99 sheep can't all be wrong. You know, it's just like... 
Isaiah 60 doesn't say arise and reflect. It says arise and shine. And it's about time we became a voice instead of an echo. I think the most profound prophetic word right now is just one word. It's the word think. Like, just try it. Just think. I know, it's hard. Just, it's foreign. <laughs> anyway, that's a whole another message. But let's pray. We should probably let's come to that. Holy Spirit. Am I supposed to be paying attention to that clock that's going backwards? I'm up there, too. I have a theory. If you can suck it in, it can't be fat. Seriously. It's just air. I have some other theories, too, I'm working on. Yeah, that one's working out for me. So we're going to pray, okay? Holy Spirit, thank you for what you're doing today, and thanks for me. And for these people, too, and we just ask that you would help us to say something that has something to do with something you want to be said today. And, Lord, I pray that they would get it, too. That the parts that are you, they would remember. Amen. That's... I want to talk about the process of developing champions. And uh, the other day, it's probably a month ago or so, we had a sunny day, and, and my little grandson, we have eight grandchildren, and my grandson, Evan, I think he's five. Is he five, honey? keeps changing. Uh, he, he comes outside and he says, Papa, I, I want to make some money. I'm going to make some money. Can I make some money? I said, sure. I said, well, you want to, how about if you sweep some leaves? The, our whole deck was covered with leaves. How about if you sweep the leaves off the deck? Okay, I'll sweep the leaves off the deck. I said, okay. So I gave him a broom and, and a dustpan, and, and I was out cleaning the pool. So I'm out there cleaning the pool, and about 15 minutes goes by, and he's sweeping out there, you know. I mean, he's kind of just moving leaves back and forth, you know. I didn't know he was going to ask for money any minute. So he comes out, about 15 minutes goes by, and he comes out to the pool, and he's kind of messing around out there. I said, did you finish sweeping all the leaves off the deck? He said, oh, no, I'm tired. I'm tired, Papa, I'm tired. I said, Superman doesn't get tired. He said, Superman doesn't sweep leaves. <laughs> On cue, Superman doesn't sweep leaves. was profound. I mean, you get it. It's exhausting whenever you're doing something you're not called to do. (laughs) See how I fit that in? Acts 9, why don't you turn there? I like reading out of the book of Acts because it's easy to find. Um, 
says this, uh, when he came to Jerusalem, speaking of, um, of Saul, who's, you know, of course, later going to be named Paul, when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with disciples, but they were afraid of him, not believing he was a disciple. He was a disciple. But Barnabas took a hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to him how he'd, been, how he'd seen the Lord on the road and how he'd talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. I just want to start here and say this, that, you know, where would uh, modern Christianity be if there wasn't a Barnabas? You know, that's not even his real names. It's his nickname. They gave him the name, the son of encouragement. And here, um, this uh, Saul is, you know, he's trying to associate with the, other, with the other apostles, with the 12 apostles, and they don't want anything to do with him, of course, because he's ravaging the church, and they probably think he's some sort of a, a plant, you know, like a CIA plant or something, yeah? Because he's, he's got a reputation for killing believers, and he's leading this whole movement that's, uh, that's, that's ravaging the church. And so he finally gets saved, and nobody will talk to him, nobody will touch him, and you can imagine that as soon as he comes to a meeting, they, they all disperse and leave, and it says that Barnabas took a hold of Saul. And there's something about this that I think is so profound and so powerful. Like, it's important, I think, you know, I think that we, we actually get saved when we believe in Jesus. But we, we become transformed when we realize that he believes in us. There's something about having someone in your life that actually believes in you, that actually changes you. And um, I really feel so strongly that we need to develop a culture in the kingdom where people can become champions, where they can become great. And I was preaching some time ago in Australia, and I was preaching on this verse that if you humble yourself, Peter said it this way, under the mighty hand of God, you'll be exalted at the proper time. James said if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted, and Jesus actually initiated that whole thought if a man will humble himself, he'll be exalted. And, and I was teaching about how to develop a culture that calls out greatness in people and that actually gives them um, the impetus that they need to become champions. And I was sharing with them, I was sharing with them some of the champions that we've had in American culture. Like we've had, you know, we've had, uh, we've had George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and you know, in, in England, they have uh, Winston Churchill and South Africa, Nelson Mandela. And I was sharing about some of these champions and how the, the, the culture, there's a culture that actually develops champions. And so I said to them, and I was just trying to use an example from their culture, and I said to the pastors in the front row, I said, who are, give me an example of who's the most famous person in your culture, like who are your heroes? And it was totally silent and uh, uh, maybe 30 seconds went by, which seemed like a long time, and, and I, they, they were kind of deliberating in the front row, and I was kind of like, you know, hurt, you know, give me just anyone. I said, just give me anybody, any hero. And it was quiet for another few seconds, and then finally uh, the, the senior leader of that meeting whispered to me, Chris, we don't have heroes in our culture. And he said, I'll explain it to you later. But he's, he whispered, it's called the tall poppy syndrome. And I'm like, well, I don't know what that's about. So we just went on, and, and I, I realized that the message, the very message that I was teaching those about four or 500 leaders, 
was completely counterculture. That it's, you know, and, uh, and, and so afterwards, uh, the leaders came up and they explained to me that the tall poppy syndrome means that the culture is responsible to actually humble people. So, you know, they take, they, they've taken the verse that says, humble yourself, and they said, they've, they've exchanged the, the personal responsibility for a corporate responsibility, and they said, we'll humble you. And I realized that Australia, and I love Australia, by the way, uh, we go, uh, go there every year, sometimes a couple times a year, so please forgive me if it sounds degrading. We have our own problems here. I'm just using it as an example. You, you probably know this, but Australia began as a slave state, as a slave nation. It was the place where, where the, the, the Brits took all their slaves and exiled them to, you know, to, this, to this place, to this continent. And, uh, and there's still a slave mindset. And as I was leaving that meeting, I began to realize, like, that's not Australia. That's religion. Like, religion creates, takes away the process, and it makes the process actually the palace. And it says the goal of your life is humility. And how many know the goal of your life is to be exalted? The process, <laughs> humility is the process to being exalted. If you humble yourself, then you'll be exalted. The process is humility. And how many understand, and we're not talking about, we don't want people walking around that are exalted, prideful, arrogance, just to make sure that you understand from the very core of my heart, like, I'm not talking about people being exalted in the sense that they become arrogant, they become prideful. That's, that's not the kingdom, that's not kingdom exaltation. But greatness is all throughout the Bible. Jesus said this often, from the least to the greatest. It, it, it isn't true that we're all the same. <laughs> okay. God loves us all the same, but he favors us differently. Even Jesus gained favor, remember, with God and man. With man, I think it's easy to understand, but it says that Jesus gained favor with God. In other words, he started at one level of favor. We don't know where that level would be, metaphorically, but he gained favor with God. And the goal is that we would develop a culture, and I'm, and I'm talking about, t- today I'm talking about developing a culture where great people emerge. Like the actual culture encourages people to rock, to be amazing. See, I think that oftentimes we have this prophetic culture where we call out destiny. No, let me say this again. Uh, I want to rephrase that. I think that that it's common for churches to have prophetic ministry where we, you know, call out greatness in people. And I think I, I love what's happening with the new prophetic movement. You know, we're no longer are we calling prophecy, describing the dry bones in Ezekiel's valley. You know, I, I hope we've moved away from that. You know, I hope you have because we have because God never was in that. I mean, the prophetic movement I grew up in was you go to the Valley of Dry Bones and you describe what the name of the dry bone person was who's dead there and what her age was. And if you were really profound, you know, what their, how they died. And you understand that this prophetic movement is not about describing what happened, but it's calling things that are not as though they are. I really, I, I think we're really past that. That I, I love what's happening. When we go, when we see dry bones, God goes, I, "Listen, I, what do you see? I see dry bones." God says, "I see a mighty army," yeah. and we begin to call out. 
things that are not as though they are. And I'll tell you that all of us that have been in the prophetic ministry for a while have all gotten in trouble for that because, you know, Johnny back there, who's a drug addict, we began to call him a holy man. And this actually happened to me several years ago. It's about seven or eight years ago. There was a young man in the back of our church who'd come in late on a Sunday night, packed crowd, and I was preaching that night. And at the end of the message, I called out a couple people, and I called him out. And I, Actually, he was sitting so far in the back, I couldn't see him clearly. But I called him out, and he stood up, and I said, I see you as a holy man. And I gave him this whole word, three or four minutes long, about being a holy man like the holy men of old, like a Nazarite of old. And Anyway, uh, about three years ago, he came up to me. This guy comes up to me. He says, do you remember me? I said, no. He said, you prophesied over me on a Sunday night. He said, I prophesied over a lot of people. I'm really sorry. And he's probably a, a man about 35 years old. He said, you called me a holy man. I said, I remember that. He said, I was a, he was, he said, I was a heroin addict since the time I was 13 years old. He said, when, he said, my friends drugged me to the meeting. I was high. When you called me a holy man, he said, I've been in and out of uh, rehabs since I was 13. He said, when you called me a holy man, he said, something came into my body. I instantly got delivered. And, you know, that was three years before. This is probably a, more than a year ago. And he said, he said, I instantly got delivered. He said, I got a job. He said, uh, and he said, last year I bought a house. And he said, I'm getting married. And he said, the woman when I'm getting married to was in a drug rehab. He said, I brought her uh, forward, uh, brought her up, and you prayed for her. And she had hepatitis C, and the Lord healed her. And there's no detection of hepatitis C in her body. And we're getting married, and we just bought a home. So I love, the fact, I love this new prophetic movement that we're actually calling things that, is, that are not as though they are. Of course, everybody around us thinks we're nuts. So well, he has terrible discernment. I mean, that's a drug addict right there. But God sees dry bones, and he goes, I see a mighty man. I see a mighty woman. I see an army. And, uh, and I, I, honestly, I, this is off track for where I'm going this morning, but I, I see a mighty army arising out of the political um, culture of America. I think we've got to stop talking about, giving a commentary on what is, and start talking about what God sees and history becomes his story. Anyway, yeah, so passionate about what's happening in in America right now. But there's a difference in my mind between prophetic ministry and a prophetic culture. Prophetic ministry identifies awesome stuff in people, but a prophetic culture creates a, if you will, a, a, a structure, a government, a culture that actually doesn't just identify it, but, it's, it, but it actually helps draw them into it. And I think there's just this powerful move right now. It's, you know, 1 Samuel chapter 9. You, you know the story. I've told it here, shared it here a couple times also. And plus, you've, some of you have read your Bibles. But uh, it's the story of when Saul, King Saul, meets Samuel the prophet. He's looking for his donkeys. You remember the story? Just for the sake of time. He meets Saul. I'm sorry, Saul meets Samuel, and he's looking for his donkeys, and his servant says, you know, maybe, he says, I think there's a uh, prophet over here in this next city. Why don't we go see if maybe he knows where our donkeys are? And so they encounter uh, Saul, Samuel, and Samuel, meanwhile, 
the night before, God says, hey, there's a guy going to be looking for his donkeys tomorrow. He says, that guy's going to be the king. Okay, so, and I want you to tell him that his donkeys are found, but I want you to anoint him king. So they have this encounter, and uh, it, this is in 1 Samuel chapter 10. He has this encounter. He says, hey, I'm looking for the prophet. Uh, Saul says, I'm looking for the prophet. And he says, I am the prophet. Listen, your donkeys you've been looking for, they are found. But I want you to stay with me for tomorrow morning. Everybody say, tomorrow morning. For tomorrow morning, I'm going to tell you everything that's in your heart. Everybody say, heart. I'm going to tell you everything that's in your heart. For aren't you the one that all of Israel is waiting on? Aren't you the one that all of Israel is waiting on? And Saul is totally stunned. He has no idea what's happening. And he begins to recount all the reasons why it can't be him. I'm telling you, people are more aware of what they're not. Every time God calls us, we give God an inventory why it, why it can't be us. These are all the reasons why you got the wrong guy. And God doesn't care what you don't have. He only cares what you have. I mean, the reason Jesus fed the 5,000 with fishes and loaves is that's because that's what the boy had in his lunch. If they would have had tacos, they would have had tacos. I mean, God doesn't care what you don't have. Listen, you just got to turn to your neighbor and say, God doesn't care what you don't have. So, so Saul begins to recount to Samuel, listen, I'm from the smallest tribe. I'm from the smallest family in the smallest tribe. And he begins to recount all the reasons why it can't, Israel can't possibly be waiting on me because I was born in the wrong time, in the wrong family, you know, and on and on and on. And Saul, and Samuel says to him, listen, you meet me tomorrow morning. So in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1, Samuel meets Saul, and of course, you know the story, he anoints him king. That's the prophetic word. But here's where we're moving. He says, listen, you're... He anoints him king of Israel. He goes, you're king of Israel. You're the leader of Israel. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down to this place, and he gives them these instructions. You're going to see some prophets coming down. They're going to have this bread and oil and wine, and you're going to take some of this from them, and they're going to be worshiping, and I want you to meet them there. And what's going to happen is, is that when you meet these prophets, you're going to be changed into another man. Now... Again, I've shared this when I was here last, but to me this is so profound because, first of all, Saul, Samuel says to Saul, tomorrow morning I'm going to tell you what's in your heart. I'm convinced that the things that we're prophesying over people are already there. I think over half of what we're sharing with people is already in their heart, but they don't know it. It's below the conscious level. But let me say this, that Samuel... Even though he already gave Saul a prophetic declaration, he's already prophesied over him. You are called to be king of Israel. He says, listen, this is what needs to happen. Okay, you've got a prophetic word. Now I need you to encounter the prophets. When he encountered the prophets, he was changed into another man. He didn't just have a prophetic word. Now he's actually encountered a prophetic culture. And the prophetic culture isn't just a word. A prophetic culture draws you into your destiny. 
I really believe that we're supposed to become a culture, a vortex, that when people come into the church, and I'm not just talking about the four walls, of course, I'm talking about the church. When people step into the kingdom, that something draws greatness out of them, and we begin to, we begin to pull them into, our, into their destiny. We begin to, like, like Barnabas takes a hold of Saul, we begin to take hold of people and say, listen, you were created to be amazing. I don't think anybody becomes amazing by themselves. I don't think they're supposed to be. I think Jesus sent people out by twos for a reason. There's a catalytic kind of synergy that happens between two people that can't happen with, by yourself. And I'm just talking about two. I'm just giving an example. I don't think that anybody becomes great on an island. There's something about meeting your Barnabas. There's something about meeting your, your Mordecai. There's something about meeting your Joseph, your Daniel. There's something about destinies that are to be intertwined. I think there are people that are called to greatness and that they just never meet a Barnabas. They never meet their Mordecai. They never meet their, you know, they never, they never meet their Nehemiah. There's just, there's people that are called to greatness, but they're isolated from other people. And it's, it's, there's something about the catalytic kind of, you know, I'm not just talking about synergy now, but I'm talking about a catalyst, a catalyst is something that when it's released into your life, or it, it, you become what you could have never become. You're not, you know, synergy is like when you can produce more together than you are, than you do apart. But a, a catalyst is when you, 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 an agent comes into your life and you become something you could never become without him. And I, I love Barnabas because he takes a hold of Saul, and you know all through the book of Acts it's Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. And then suddenly, the first time Saul's name is changed to Paul, the order of their, the order of their relationship is changed. And now it's Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. One thing that I see in the church is that Saul's never get to become Paul's in a church. They usually have to leave the church to become a Paul. And then we take credit for it. Not realizing that they actually had to leave to get a name change. No one can ever outgrow us. And part of that is, is that, you know, it takes a call, gifting, and anointing to actually have any kind of a ministry. A call, gifting, and anointing. And part of the tr struggle is that we have gift-based leadership instead of called-based leadership. You know, if, if you have a gift-based culture, what it means is the most gifted person is leading. What happens when someone who's more gifted comes into the culture or is developed in the culture? He's sabotaged by the leader. I'm not saying consciously. I'm saying the very culture sabotages them because they know the only reason I'm in charge is because I'm the most qualified. But as we move into this apostolic generation, what happens is, is that we, are, we begin a called-based leadership. And we move from a hierarchy to an hierarchy. Hierarchy is where, you know, it comes from, from a pecking order, which is all, it was all developed around the concept of watching chickens. Appropriately. Whenever you try to become greater than the head chicken, you're pecked to death. That's a hierarchy. It's based on gifts. 
most qualified, strongest. But an hierarchy, we are heirs of Christ Jesus, is based on callings. It's based on, it's called-based leadership. In other words, I'm, Paul said this, he said, I'm a called as an apostle, not by the agency of man, but by the agencies of God. What's the point? I'm not here, because, and then he goes on to talk about, listen, here are my qualifications. I was beaten, I was shipwrecked, and he goes on this whole list, and we're like, oh, that's horrible. What he's really saying is, listen, I am not here because I am qualified. I realized that I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, I was all this stuff, but none of that qualified me, because I am called, not gifted, I'm in this position not because I'm the most gifted, person. And people can look at Paul and say, well, of course Paul's the uh, you know, senior apostle over this area because you know, he's been educated and he's smart and he's, you know, he's, he's writing books that are you know, bestsellers. And he's like, no, no, that's not why I'm here. I'm here because I'm called by God. And what happens when I'm called by God is I become a mother or a father and you can't take me out because you didn't put me here. And then I begin to measure my success not by what I've achieved, but what I, but what you achieve. When I'm a dad, I measure my success by how my how powerfully my sons and daughters outgrow me. But as long as I live in the chicken coop of religion, all I do is peck people when they get too big. And I'm concerned that we have. You know, we're releasing gifts, and it's awesome. You know, uh, Graham and I, and uh, my, I mean, you know, some of our specialties equipping the saints to do prophetic ministry, and, and it's, it's awesome, it's wonderful, but I, I really, I really am tired of that. I'm not tired of training people. I'm tired of training people to live in a chicken coop. I am so sick of that. I'm so sick of a pastor is calling us in the churches to train their leaders, and two years later, later they have a church split because somebody outgifted the pastor. I think one of the most needed gifts in this season is actually the discerning of spirits. The distinguishing of spirits. And I, wanna, I want you to note, it's not called the dis- distinguishing of evil spirits. It's called the distinguishing of spirits. Now, I understand that the gift also distinguishes evil spirits, and I think we've overemphasized that. Because I think the most powerful part of that gift inside the kingdom is not distinguishing evil spirits. I think it's distinguishing spirits. I think 2 Corinthians 5.16 you know, 5.17 is, uh, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. But I think the highlighted verse for this season is 5.16. We no longer know each other after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, he said, he's talking about the, their whole communion, and he said, you, you misjudged the body, and some of you are sick, some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some have even died. Of course, the people who have died wouldn't be reading that. But the point is, is that... The point is, I, I don't think he's saying, like, you judge the body. I mean, it could be. I mean, one application is you have judgment on you. But I think he's actually saying, you know what? You do not know how to distinguish people after the Spirit, and therefore the very thing you need to be healthy, well, and established, strong in God is sitting right next to you, but because you only know people after the flesh, you're here weak and dying. 
Because the answer is in the person next to you. The person God's put in your life. You know, people in Nazareth were sick, and here, the answer, Jesus, is the answer, and they don't know him after the spirit. They only know him after the flesh, and people were sick and dying because the answer they needed was embodied in somebody who pooped their diapers when he was a baby. And I think we need to develop a culture that calls out greatness in people, but not just calls it out, welcomes them welcomes people into their destiny. I'm telling you, the, our, the, the, we don't have pews anymore. But if we did, our pews, it, it, you know, that's why they call them pews. Just think about the word. Yeah, we used to think people who sat in them stunk. They're all sinners saved by grace. And now we realize they were sinners, but when they got saved by grace, they became saints. They became holy believers. They became people who were born to be exalted. So it's, it's a bummer when we exchange the process for the palace. I think we need to start creating a culture of reward. Our, our country, Americans, in my opinion, have lost a culture of reward, and I'm concerned about it. I don't accuse any political party for it. I think it's a spirit. Jesus told a story. Um, it's in um, Luke chapter 19. And here's, it's, here's, uh, here's, it's, it's interesting. Luke 19. Let me just, you can open there if you'd like. I just want to read you. Um, verse 11. Sorry, it is verse 11, but there's a... Um, oh, here it is, yeah, verse 11. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell them a parable. He was nearing Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Now, I want to stop just for a minute, because the parable you know well, but the context is really important. They thought the kingdom... See, he was heading towards Jerusalem, and their eschatology only had one coming. Selah. I mean, the Pharisees missed Jesus... One of the main reasons is because of their eschatology. Their eschatology was wrong. The Christ is standing right in front of them, but they had, the first, they, they had a first coming and a second coming all in one coming, so they couldn't figure out why this guy wasn't becoming king. So when, he's, when he starts going towards Jerusalem, they're, gonna, they, they're thinking, well, we're going to make him king. That's why uh, James and John argued about sitting on his left and right hand. They weren't talking about heaven. They were talking about, like, now. And I could get off, so we won't. So the, 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 the reason why Jesus told them a parable, this parable, was because they thought the kingdom was happening right now. Okay? Now, I won't really read the parable for the sake of time, but the parable is a, the parables of the minus. Remember that? And Jesus gave three guys minus. And one guy made ten. He, got, he had one minus, and he, got, and he made ten with it. And Jesus said, well done, good and faithful servant. And he said, I will put you over ten cities. This is really important. We're talking about how to reform cultures. Jesus taught us how to reform cultures. 
He put him over ten cities. Then one guy, another guy, he took his one and he made five. And Jesus said, that's awesome. You'll be over five cities. Now, here goes, right here. The guy that had one, what did he do? He buried it. And what did he have when Jesus came back? He had what, yes, you're wrong. He had the one that was given to him. And Jesus took the one away from him, obviously had some harsh words for him. And what did he do with the one? He gave it to the guy who had what? Ten. And everybody's like, whoa, they're Americans. They're like, wait a second, the guy already has ten. And Jesus said, oh, I'm so sorry. I should have gave it to the guy who needed to be subsidized. In fact, what we should do is take your ten and take two of those because we have a guy who doesn't know how to make them. And, and we'll take two from you. We'll take three from you. So you'll have seven. And we'll give it to the guy who had one. That'll give him four. And then we'll take, we'll, we'll take two from the guy who had... Five, and we'll give it to the guy who had four. Now he's got six. And we don't realize the kingdom is a culture of reward. When you do awesome, you get more. And, and, it's an example of how the kingdom comes. Remember, they thought the kingdom was coming immediately, so he gave them a parable of how the kingdom is coming. And he said, I'm going to put you over cities. What were they faithful with? Money. When you're faithful with money, he puts you over cities. Only, it's the only strategy in the Bible, in the New Testament, where city-taking is actually taught. We live in a subsidy culture. Oh, Johnny, he's afraid. We need to give him all of ours. Well, you know, there is something to that. Proverbs says, if the king remembers the poor, his throne will be established forever. So there's a difference between people who are poor in spirit and people who are lazy. I want you to understand, God does never subsidize his lazy. In fact, there's a proverb that says, a man's hunger works for him and eggs him on. (laughs) God rewards faithfulness. I'm telling you, like, in my opinion... uh, This is not the opinion of our sponsors. In my opinion, most of the church, church, not kingdom. Most of the modern church is actually spiritual communism. We've taken the book of Acts where people sold stuff and helped the poor. And we've like, well, you know what? We're all supposed to be equal, kumbaya. I'm like, you know what? God wouldn't have put thou shall not steal if he wanted, to live, wanted us to live communally in the Ten Commandments. Because that means people actually own stuff. <laughs> anyway, it's a good word, actually. 
I think it's really important that we begin to develop a culture that calls out greatness in people, but also takes a hold of them. You know, I love the Apostle Paul uh, in the Bible, but I wouldn't want to go to his church. (laughs) If there was an Apostle Paul church, I wouldn't have gone to it. Because Paul and, you know, now it's Paul and Barnabas. His name's changed. Paul has outgrown him. And Barnabas and Paul are on a missionary journey. And Barnabas takes Mark with him. Mark and Barnabas and Paul are all on a missionary journey. And we don't know all the details, but we know they ran into some opposition, which is shocking with Paul. (laughs) We don't know if he got stoned that time or beat up or shipwrecked or beaten with a whip, but whatever it was, Mark ran off. Big chicken. And when they, later on, they wanted to go back and visit those churches and see how they were doing and strengthen them. And Barnabas wanted to take Mark with him, who is actually his cousin. And Paul wouldn't have anything to do with that. And there was such a uh, dissension between them that it was actually the first church split. And Barnabas took Mark and Paul took Silas. Now, we don't know what actually happened with Barnabas and Mark as far as, at least biblically, because... Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, went with Paul. So we know about Paul's missionary journey. We don't know anything about Barnabas' missionary journey. But we do know this, that years later, Paul calls for Mark and says, send Mark to me. He's good for the ministry. Yeah, well, I guess he is because he wrote the gospel of Mark. See, Barnabas never wrote a book of the Bible. But in my opinion, in heaven, he's the guy with the big trophy. Because without Barnabas, there is no Mark. And without Barnabas, there is no Paul. And in my opinion, there are guys who write books, and then there are guys who develop the people who write books. And sometimes the guys who write 13 books don't want to take the guy along that's going to write a gospel of Mark. But once he gets, once Barnabas, Barnabas gets a hold of him and gets him all straightened out, later on Paul's like, yes, yeah, send him to me. I love Paul in the book of Galatians. He says, if you receive circumcision, faith is of no value to you. Then he takes Timothy with him and circumcises him. I'd be like, hey, 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 your book right here. <laughs> uh, right here you wrote, yeah, come over here. We're going to have a men's meeting. I'm like, no, no, no. Like, <laughs> like I, I, I love Paul's you know, intellect and, and his ability to articulate, but I'd still want to be Barnabas' disciple. I think there needs to be a Barnabas mantle on the church. I think there needs to be people who are screwed up, who, are, who, who have a Barnabas in their life, and say, I believe in you. Listen, I see you not after, this, not after the flesh, but after the spirit. You know, when, there, men, when, when Jesus told this parable about people being invited to this, this, this uh, wedding feast, and they took too high of a seat, remember that? It says, listen, if you take too high of a seat, someone more distinguished than you, more distinguished than you, will come in, and then you will be humbled. So what I want you to do is take the lowest seat, 
so that when the guest, so the guest of honor can say, come up here. <laughs> Two things. First of all, the distinguishing of spirits. If someone more distinguished than you comes in the room, I mean, the key is, is that you know people after the spirit so that you can see, hey, first of all, you can see young people, uh, we need to understand that there are people who have more favor on them than when we do. And the only way you can get an inheritance is to know somebody has something you don't have. And if you don't have the distinguishing of spirits, you are relegated to sowing and reaping instead of inheritance. The second thing I'd like to mention, though, is the kingdom is not a round table. Jesus didn't say, you know, just sit anywhere. It doesn't matter. No, it's a rectangular table with levels of honor. There are levels of honor. That's the kingdom. Did you get that? There are levels of honor. It's important that there are levels of honor in the house of God. That we look at people and we go, that's one of our heroes. Oh, you know, it's not me, it's Jesus. No, it's you. It's okay. Paul wrote to... Uh, Paul uh, wrote to the Corinthian church. He says, I'm sending you Timothy. He's my son. He's going to teach you my ways. I want you to imitate my ways, which are in Christ. We're like, don't follow me. Follow Jesus. Well, if, if following you isn't following Jesus, I don't know where the heck you're going, but whatever it is, you need to turn around. We need giant killers to raise up other giant killers. We need people. See, part of the struggle is that people are trying to have a corp- they're trying to be a corporate covering, but they've never had a personal victory. Do you understand what I just said? There's a lot of people who mistaken accountability for covering. Covering and accountability are not the same thing. It says in, in Acts 7 that Joseph, Joseph, it's Stephen telling the story right before he gets stoned. It's Stephen telling this, the Old Testament, the kind of Reader's Digest story of the Old Testament, and he makes this statement. There arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. Remember Joseph of the Old Testament? There arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, and he took shrewd advantage of our people, even exposing our infants unto death. Remember that story? You'll notice it doesn't say there arose a Pharaoh who knew not God. It says there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. What happened? Joseph won a personal victory. He forgave his brothers when they didn't deserve it. He stayed out of Potiphar's wife's bed. And he kept his dream alive when he was in prison. And what happened? Joseph's victory became a personal victory corporate covering. His personal victory became corporate covering. Seventy-two of his family came in to Egypt. And what did they get? They didn't get what they deserved. They got what Joseph deserved. It's called inheritance. They got what Joseph deserved because they came under his covering. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, it's the story of David and Goliath. There's just one uh, verse I want to highlight there. Goliath stands up and he says this, send me a man. If he beats me, we will all serve you. But if I beat him, you will all serve us. Joshua was down in the valley fighting the Amalekites. And Moses does this. I don't know if he went, oh man, I'm so tired. 
can kind of picture that, you know. I'm so tired. Aaron, her, watch this. Win, lose. Win, lose. Mo, you're right. Win, lose. Come over here. Hold up my hands. We don't get that. We don't get that. We, we do more equipping, build bigger armies, and have no idea what's going on. And there's a whole lot of people trying to be a corporate covering, but they haven't won a personal victory. And it's raining inside. But what happens when you beat the lion and you beat the bear? 1 Samuel 22, and all those who are discontent, all those who are in debt, and it goes on to list these guys who were like totally like nobody wanted them. And it says, and David became the captain over them. You know the story. In 2 Samuel 23, this is at the end of David's life. These are the final words that David wrote. And these are the mighty men whom David had. Come on! We need to build a culture that, that, that raises up champions. By the way, just let me finish that. Accountability means that you actually have a relationship with somebody who doesn't hold you account for smoking, but makes sure that you're on fire. <laughs> Accountability isn't about making sure you don't do something wrong. Accountability... Accountability is about making sure you were, you were born to rock, that you come into your destiny. That you're not doing, you're not sweeping leaves when you're supposed to be saving criminals. Wearing yourself out. Accountability is relational. Covering is not. You ask people, oftentimes, you know, we have all, all these folks that, that are traveling all over the place, and you're like, hey, who's your accountability? And they go, oh, Joe Famous. But Joe Famous hasn't seen them for years. It's like, no, no, that's your covering. That's your covering. See, we live in America. Our forefathers, I never even knew my forefathers. I'm know of them. But I'm living in their personal victory. If you're an African-American, Martin Luther King won a personal victory that became a corporate covering. You didn't fight for it. Someone else did. If you're a woman in America, you couldn't vote till 1920, November 1920. There were people who fought for something that you get to... It's funny. Once we get our freedom, we don't want to fight for anyone else's. Well, I don't know what we're doing over there. I don't know, but I'm certainly glad that our forefathers didn't think like that because you'd be living in slavery right now or we'd be living, you know, who knows. I mean, the British would rule us and Graham would be my boss. Your Majesty. I am now an arch prophet. That 
clock says I have seven minutes. Is that right? Okay. <laughs> you know, um, I was uh, in another country in June on June 23rd, and I got a text from Bill, and it said this. It just said this line: "I believe in you." Salt said, I believe in you. See, you're, you love the refined me. <laughs> or not. <laughs> I had a nervous breakdown the year before I met Bill. My nervous breakdown lasted three and a half years. I mean, if you're going to have one, have one. People are like, I had a nervous breakdown. It lasted three weeks. I'm like, cool, that ain't a nervous breakdown, dude. That's a little anxiety attack. If you're going to get screwed up, you know, do it enough that you can write a book about it and get paid for it. I shook like an alcoholic. I couldn't get water to my face without holding it with two hands when I met Bill. I had night terrors. I'd sweat the bed wet at night. I was afraid of everything. And Bill used to say this to me all the time. He used to say, you know, see, he wouldn't say it to me. He would say it to people when he would introduce me. He'd say, this is Chris Bellaton. He, he, he goes where angels fear to tread. What he didn't realize is I was afraid of everything. I was terrified of everything. I had irrational fear. But he kept saying, he goes where angels fear to tread. Someone took a hold of me. He said, I believe in you. I believe in you. And he never treated me as I was. I've quoted this several times. It's in two of my books. Allison, one of my students who actually is the editor of all my books, she used to say this all the time to me, but the first time it stunned me. She said, I love to listen to other people's prophecies. I said, you like to listen to other people's prophecies? I don't even like to listen to them. Well, anyway. (laughs) Why? She said, because then I treat them not as they are, but as God sees them. And I invite them into their destiny. It's so funny how we can prophesy greatness over someone then treat them like they're nobody. And then they leave and become someone and we go, yeah, I'm their spiritual dad. Well, they were called Saul when they were with you. They had to leave to become Paul. Because they started to rival your own level of greatness and so then we began to sabotage Begin to sabotage their growth. And my question is, where are all the heroes? Where are the heroes? You know, we're in this place where I've heard, I've had actually a prophecy myself for this place. And last night, Mark Sharona took that to another level about this house, about actors and all the things that are supposed to come out. Prophetic words will not change things if you have a culture that resists it. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be an astronaut. 
Well, let me tell you something. There's not very many astronauts. You know, I just want to, I want to shepherd you. Okay? Don't dream big. You know, I love Acts 2.17 because it says this. In the last days, I'll pour out my spirit. And we already said it's all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will what? See, I don't think he's talking about old men going to sleep and having a dream. I don't think that's a sign of the Spirit being poured out. I think the sign of the Spirit being poured out is that old men begin to dream again. They lose the cynical spirit. Listen, you've got to get this. One of the things that's, keep, that's, that's keeping Generation Gap alive is the cynical spirit in old people. And when someone says, I want to be an astronaut, we tell them, like, we want... We, we, we teach them, actually we teach them to not believe God. We teach them, well, you better have a backup plan because, you know, you may not be an astronaut and I want to tell you about what happens when you're not an astronaut and what terrible is going to happen to you. And, you know, if you don't think I'm an astronaut and you want to be an astronaut and you go to school for the astronaut and then you don't get chosen to be an astronaut, your life is over because you don't want to dream and you just want to temper everything and make sure that you have a, And what we do is talk people out of their destiny. We don't actually believe that God's big enough to pick up people when they fall. And I love it because when the Spirit's poured out, it says that all men begin to dream again. And when someone comes to us and they're like, I want to be an actor. Like, you'd be an awesome actor. You'd be amazing. And I don't mean that we shouldn't obviously redirect people of, you know, I want to be a singer. Well, you suck at singing, so... How about a songwriter? Yeah, that'd be great. I'll be a songwriter. I mean, look at Bob Dylan, you know. He can't sing a song. He's the most famous guy in heart. Man, you want to serve somebody? I mean, you know, think about if you would have had a dad that went to church. Think if Dylan would have had a... His dad would have been a preacher. Like, well, son, you know, you can't talk. You know, you can't sing. Seriously. Dan, I want to be a singer. Well, you got a problem, son. <laughs> you can't sing. And God's called me to sing. Whatever. It's time to dream again. It's time to de- develop a culture not just where we call out greatness in people, but when we take a hold of them. We take a hold of them. And then we say to them, I believe in you. Listen, I believe in you. Your history is not your destiny. Your history is not your destiny. Not when someone takes a hold of you. I can remember Bill introducing me. This has happened for years. And I'm wondering, who in the heck's here? <laughs> Who's he talking about? I want you to stand. I have eight seconds. <laughs> Get her done. Okay, so, oh, we have no seconds, so now we're in the timeless zone. 
want to do this quickly. Graham has a session right after me. We don't want to miss that. Close your eyes right now. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to give you one person that you can take a hold of. One person. I know everyone's thinking, well, someone needs to take a hold of me. I'm like, all right, yeah, that's awesome. Let's try you first. I want you to think of one person. One person. Close your eyes. One person. One person that you can take a hold of. That you'll begin to say, you're amazing. You rock. Listen, I'm going to make it my ambition for you to outgrow me. It's my ambition that you would outgrow me. That's my ambition. I'm going to make myself so uncomfortable because you're going to be amazing. No one's even going to know me. They're going to know you. And, that, and you know what? You father them, and they're going to go, um, aren't you? Are you Paul's friend? Uh, yeah. I guess so. I guess I'm Paul's friend. Yeah. I look forward to the day when people introduce me as Jason's father. My son's name is Jason. Marty's father. My son. Instead of this is, this is, this is Jason. His father's Chris. And instead of me giving value to him, I look forward to the day when I can say, I hang out with Jason because he makes me feel important. Marty, Jamie, you know, you get the idea. You know what I'm trying to say. It's like, Lord, I just pray right now that these people that you have placed in our hearts, and we ask you to right now, these people that you've placed in our hearts, that we would give ourselves to these people. We wouldn't just prophesy into their life, but that we would help them through the hard times, and we would remind them, Lord, just years later, 32 years later, Bill still texted me, I believe in you. I believe in you. God, I pray that we would be people who believe in God, and we'd be people who believe in the God that's in people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much.